welcome to the Cartography Podcast. This episode will be about travel. For this episode, uh, I wanted to have a discussion about the role of travel in the modern globalized world, but then also discuss what travel looks like in an increasingly regional world where things like onshoring, strategically significant manufacturing, and other new customs like remote work act as a more localizing force. So I thought it would make sense to start with um, going over some of the reasons that you travel. So we could start with work, get into education, uh, family, and then finally vacation and leisure. So as far as work, I think the most obvious thing to talk about uh, would be the concept of work from home that's become popular in the last couple of years since COVID started. Um, so, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if that lasts over the long term. What, what do you think? Do you think it's here to stay? Yeah, I mean, I think that to some extent or other, you know, I don't know that I would say confidently that the trend is is going to just continue to, you know, move in the direction that it had over the course of the pandemic. Um, because as you've mentioned it in the past, and as I've also seen in my experience, you know, a lot of employers are in the process of trying to reverse this. It's not only happening on the large corporation level where uh, some employers are, are saying that um, they want their staff to return to the office at least a certain number of days per week, which would indicate that they probably, you know, that, that that's kind of them trying to phase it back in. At the same time, I think that there have been significant cultural changes where, you know, a lot of people are simply not willing to endure the kind of experience that the sort of work life balance, for lack of a better word, that had become normalized up until COVID. And I think that that's just that the, the way that that's going to affect travel is going to play itself out in a million different ways. Um, I think that, uh, excuse me, not so work in general and travel kind of as it relates to work, uh, I think we're going to see changes in, in like how people fly changes in, you know, gas mileage. Uh, there are just so many different, uh, sort of factors that play into it, but for sure, I think we're going to continue to see changes for no other reason than just economic factors, which is largely what drove many of the pandemic shifts as well, even though they were constructed economic incentives, they were nonetheless, I think that is what ultimately shifted people's behaviors. Yeah, you know, I think that's right. And I think it was it was also interesting uh, during COVID, just how much leverage and power that employers, but I guess more specifically, like large corporations gave to the employees when they allowed them to work from home. Um, but I mean, you're starting to see that shift a little bit now. Um, I know Amazon is pushing a return to the office like a couple days a week uh, over the next couple months. And I'm not sure if the other firms have already announced this or if they're planning to announce it together. Like something like that wouldn't surprise me, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I think it wouldn't uh, surprise me either. Yeah. I mean, also with I don't know if you've paid much attention, but you've seen uh, a lot of layoffs happen in the tech sector. Um, nothing too crazy yet. Uh, because the economy hasn't like turned down too negatively at this point, but 
under the threat of like the potential layoff that could really be a way for employers to, to take back some of the power uh, that they or some of the leverage that they allowed the employees to take. So, you know, it, it wouldn't surprise me if there's sort of like a moderating event where yeah. maybe some of the more senior and more desirable employees sort of can mm-hmm. do the work from home and dictate uh, more of their own personal situation. But I think for a lot of the younger employees, I think a lot of them might end up going back. And, you know, being from, so like when being from like a small town in Pennsylvania, um, I worked in New York city for a while. And like one of the main reasons for travel for me was to go see my family, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. but, but beyond that, it like coming from a small town, it was always just the idea of like, Oh, I need to like go to a bigger city where I could like find a job and work. Cause like, we knew that like there was no high paying jobs like where we were from, you know, I mean, like there, there were some like if you were a doctor or a lawyer or something, but like you were never going to like make the amount of money that you saw people make on TV. You know what I mean? So like so, for like, sure. the reason for travel, like for people in like small northeastern towns, at least like where I'm from, like it was always like to to try to find a job, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think that as you can probably attest to even now, you know, the nature of those towns is changing, too. And the kind of demographics, I mean, we're just in, in the right in the middle of such a massive demographic shift, you know, with the kind of generation X generation moving into retirement. Um, I think a lot of things are going to change drastically. Um, just geographically is really a, a big one. Um, you know, but the, the other thing I wanted to say relative to work and the whole idea to backtrack a little bit to talking about uh, how, impl- how there's this kind of tug of war going on between labor and management, you know, uh, whether or not people are going to, I mean, more, you know, labor, I mean, more, more, we're talking about the tech sector, tech sector, we're talking about the laptop class here. Uh, but, but I think that there's a lot also to be said for this cultural shift, uh, which is ongoing, whereby a lot of people are realizing frankly, the folly of even staying in the tech sector, uh, you know, especially in the kind of lower rung of, of a lot of these, it's not just tech, you know, it's, it's, I would say any industry where the kind of mass of university educated, um, you know, people with like underwater basket weaving degrees, you know, but a, a, a ton of college debt, uh, where, where these folks have kind of taken refuge in, a, a th- in theory, you know, but I think in reality over the years, and this is a pretty commonly understood thing, you know, that there, there is objectively very little benefit, uh, at least monetary benefit in remaining in that industry kind of as a part of that lower class, because you make really only marginally more money than, you know, minimum wage employees in many cases. And, you know, in many cases, you're also saddled with the uh, kind of cultural and economic burden of sort of maintaining a certain image, buying a certain type of clothing and going to, you know, going out to bars for drinks with your, you know, presumably middle class friends. You know, a lot of people are going insane running up credit card debt simply to maintain a very short-term illusion of a sort of traditional 1990s middle-class lifestyle kind of thing. And I think 
a, a whole ton of people are uh, just getting so tired of this that they're saying, screw it, and just frankly getting real jobs. And this is maybe my fun way of announcing that that's what I recently did. Uh, you know, I now work full time as a prep cook at a local restaurant. I have decided, at least for the time being, that there is simply no good reason at all to deal with um, the, uh, <laughs> you know, just the the tech world, the corporate world, or any of it. Um, and let me also say, just as a as a small tangent about that, that it has been one of the greatest things I've ever done in my life. And in large part, because I feel like I have to some degree escaped so much of like this woke culture and just all of this political culture that drives me insane, uh, that is so ever present in the tech sector, regardless of where you live, I would say. Uh, it's so ironic too, because the restaurant that I work for, you know, I'm not going to get into detail about the, the folks who own it. Cause I just don't want to risk anybody you know, finding out where I work, but, uh, like they're, they're not exactly, you know, the kind of people who I would necessarily want to like share a community with in theory. Uh, but they're totally cool to be around because it's not this sort of office culture. So I guess I would just say like for a lot of people who find all of this so incredibly overwhelming and difficult to deal with, which I totally understand, you know, all of this woke nonsense it's framed politically, but really it's a lot more than that. It's just this whole kind of university culture that permeates tech corporations, government, you know, the sort of successful sectors where middle-class college kids like us would like to see ourselves end up. Uh, these places are almost unbearable to exist in for, for I think probably the majority of people, whether they're honest about it or not. And um, I think a whole ton of us are just done with it. I think there's more to it though. Like I, I think it's, I think it would be a mistake to label the idea of, traveling to cities like to, to conflate that specifically with the tech sector like I think what we're seeing now is in an economic standpoint you're seeing a lot of money now come out of the tech sector um, mm -hmm. and into like energy like oil and gas and things like that so mm -hmm. you know, it wouldn't surprise me if and I mean uh, pharmaceutical companies as well so I mean it wouldn't surprise me to see cities now start to rise up as not as a tech sector, but maybe at like, like as an energy city or like as a, like a hospital or pharmaceutical city, you know, like, 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 I mean, I guess Boston has kind of always been that way, but, but I think that's sort of what the, at least the midterm future looks like if there's money coming out of the tech sector. I mean, I, I still think long-term like tech is just such like a globalizing force. So like, it kind of just has a way of like naturally siphoning up like a lot of the investment capital. But um, right. it wouldn't surprise, like, especially in Texas, you know, I recently just moved out of Texas, but we drove through West Texas and got to see some of the oil drilling and stuff down there. And mm -hmm. I mean, that's like a massive industry. And like, so for example, if you're working at big, t if you got a job at big tech last year and they gave you um, like a bunch of restricted stock units, um, most of that has gone down pretty dramatically in value. But over that same time frame, if you started working at an oil and gas company or something, I mean, you might have double or tripled your um, like your stock value in that point. So I, I think that's going to kind of play out 
in the real world uh, in a real way where like you'll start to see people moving uh, and like traveling around like for other um, like businesses. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, I, I think there is just, again, so much transitional activity happening right now as we're speaking related to the pandemic and just so many other things. But really, I would I would say the biggest shifts we're experiencing right now are demographic. You know, like, I mean, not that no, everybody doesn't know this, but it, it's not just the Gen X folks moving into retirement. It's basically the entire boomer generation on their way out. And it's we're finally reaching this point in like this decade, basically, where all of these people who have been occupying the jobs that literally run the society, you know, they've been so absurdly old for so long. So many of them are past retirement age. Like it's really coming up to the point where those, those positions will be vacated. <laughs> and mm -hmm. What what's going to happen then? I don't know. It's going to be extremely complicated. You know, there will probably be all sorts of attempts to transition as smoothly as possible. But I mean, you and I were talking earlier about how it's very possible that this is going to lead to all sorts of debt crises on both, you know, financial and, and national levels and sovereign debt crises, and which could lead to international conflicts, of course, God forbid. Uh, but it certainly has been the cause of, of wars in the past, uh, failure to to pay debts. Um, there, there are just so many things which can shift, I think, in this economy, in this context, in all of these, these cultural and demographic shifts, uh, in, in the, the context, especially of, of the regionalization, which we're seeing in response to a lot of this, you know, the, a lot of globalization trends that we've taken for granted do not seem to be progressive. Like it, it, there, there seem to be a lot of things. Um, uh, the pendulum seems to be swinging in another direction right now. Yeah. You know, I think the regionalism perspective is interesting to talk about in the sense, um, you know, I was just talking about Texas. So out in West Texas, I mean, people think Texas is just like all white people down there, but I mean, like when we were down there, it's like, it's the majority of people are Hispanic, like depending on where mm -hmm. you go, you know, yeah. but uh, I think that's just another, uh, it's another interesting way to talk about the regionalism aspect of it, where a, a, as immigration sort of being a counter to, to the demographic situation. So, I mean, Peter Zihan does a lot of uh, research on this. He's from Stratford. Um, he's been yeah. popular lately. You could look up his work, if, but he, but he talks about it uh, mostly with respect to Asia. Um, with China specifically, mm -hmm. but then Japan's probably also one of the best examples of this. Um, and then, of course, the economists say that the solution to Japan's demographic problem. So they they have like a less younger people than older people. Um, so this goes to what you were talking about how they're not being enough. Uh, well, well, about older people vacating their jobs and having to be filled by younger people, right? But if you don't I mean, have that's enough just one aspect people, of it, right? Like there's the cost of their healthcare. There's just I mean, there's just like right. so many different yeah, things. Yeah. But yeah, but anyway, it's it's interesting to see how the U.S. has kind of adapted to that. I mean, we don't we don't have the lowest birth rates worldwide. So like we don't we're not in the same situation as Japan uh, or China with regard to that. But but even just the, how regionalism is kind of quote unquote a solution to that quote unquote problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that for sure. We have been 
very obedient, not just us, but, you know, the Western world and, and by extension, the third world, you know, the third world has largely been at least in their urban centers, you know, like they have very much adopted the, the culture of the West, the North. Uh, and, uh, I think you're beginning to see in a lot of different places and contexts, like people just sort of realize, you know what? Like it's just finding kind of their own ways to sort of quietly circumvent these things because they're realizing that um, they're just not in their interest. And I think that the regionalization, you know, that we're seeing play out uh, on like a, a national political level, I, I really do think a lot of this stuff is is grassroots. Now, I, I mean, I personally, I think that it, it it's unfortunate to me that this is kind of how it expresses itself, or at least that this, I shouldn't say it's not the only way that it expresses itself. I mean, there is a lot of very encouraging kind of localized grassroots stuff that I see going on, at least in the United States and apparently in other places as well. I know, I know less about that. Uh, But, you know, I, I, I think that there is a lot of encouraging stuff that people are doing in the way of just turning away from um, these centralized systems. I think that the pandemic fiasco that we've all experienced globally has been a huge catalyst of that. Um, You know, it, it really is sort of one of those things where I think you could make a pretty strong argument that that precisely because this globalist construct is weaker than it's ever been, that all of this posturing and all of these control grid type systems that they're trying to urgently erect, like I think that that it's much more a sign of their panic than it is of their, you know, um, total control over things. because at the end of the day, I just see too much sort of, you know, despite how enthusiastically so many people kind of bought into the whole COVID regime and, you know, everything, it's like, yeah, and then it all kind of played itself out, you know, as it you know, you would at least think inevitably it had to, at some point it was going to be obvious that like nothing was happening the way that they sort of kept saying it would. Uh, The vaccine wasn't working the way that they said it would. And there was no real apparent pandemic happening the way that they said there was. And, and so you sort of, I think it really did set into people's minds. Like I know that we've always said over these, oh, you know, this proves that people will literally believe anything. And yeah, in a way, some people, but I really think that by the time all of this completely shakes out, it'll end up being a lot fewer people than I, than it initially seemed, you know, I really think that I may have underestimated people's sort of fickleness you know, or just like ability to go along rather than their sort of enthusiastic participation in it. Yeah. You know, I think there's been a lot of unforeseen consequences, even from the perspective of like the economic planners driving globalization, right? So like in the intro, I mentioned um, onshoring, like specifically uh, as related to like uh, strategically significant manufacturing and things like that. So 
I mean, you're post COVID now you're seeing uh, a lot of semiconductors and a lot more energy now being produced uh, domestically just because it's like, it, like globalization is inherently like a strategic problem for those elites and or the, the people that run those industries. Right. So like, yeah. And that, like that, that onshoring effect is just another uh, is a perfect example of regionalism coming back. You know, so like well, they're literally know, bringing back semiconductors. Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Could you elaborate a little bit more on why it is that onshoring is a strategic, excuse me, a strategic problem for like industrial or, or resource based type? Well, of no, 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 no. Offshore, offshoring was so like if offshoring. you have okay. Like if you have NVIDIA or AMD making all of their chips in China and then China decides to lock down and nobody's making chips, well, then that's a problem for our companies, right? So then like right. one of the effects post-COVID is what they've done is now they've, I, I, I think they, I'm pretty sure there was a government program that, I mean, of course, it gives them billions of dollars in subsidies to, to actually onshore the jobs. So so, that, so they mm -hmm. make money shipping the jobs away and then we give them money to bring the jobs back. I mean, the, right. the moral question of that, of that aside, I mean, I think it's still... <laughs> Uh, a net positive for for these local communities that these jobs are now here as opposed to somewhere in Asia. I, like that's just inherently a regionalizing effect. You know what I mean? Or, or a localizing effect. Um, and, and I think that that's going to revitalize a lot of towns. Um, I think the big one that I saw was in Ohio. There's going to be a big plant in Ohio. Um, and I think there was going to be one in Arizona too. But, but I mean, this kind of goes into what I was saying before, where like, it might not only just be like big tech anymore, but I mean, like, of course, semiconductors are like <laughs> in the technology sector, but, yeah. but that's, but, but that's still more focused on manufacturing. And that's like a very right. different, uh, different thing than like, well, it could just be on. kind of like a phase, right? Like, I mean, this is sort of what the, the global system is doing right now, ultimately oriented towards tech in a lot of different ways. And so certainly to whatever extent industry would regionalize, you wouldn't expect them to completely shift everything, you know, turn on a dime as it were, they would probably still be ancillary in some ways to the global, you know, other, right. other nations, yeah. of course. I mean, and that this is the other thing. I mean, this whole kind of idea of regionalism or nationalism or kind of nationalist mercantilism. I mean, I think there is like a, an inherent fallacy to the idea of, that it is in fact, at least economically speaking, actually somehow nationalism, like that there is this strictly domestic economy, at least to whatever extent it's also mercantilist in nature. Because my understanding of kind of nationalist economics is that it very much sees it itself as kind of one nation competing against the others on this kind of global marketplace. Um, so I, I do think there is, there is, there is just always going to be inherent interdependence, right? Like to whatever extent you're you're doing that at all. Sure. Yeah. You know, there's definitely interdependence, but I, I think this is a something particularly interesting to point out because people often get like kind of like blackpilled with the idea of like, oh, like all the elites are just working together. Like the Chinese are working with the Americans and like there's no real countries. It's just these group of elites that run everything. But when you, when you see uh, multi-trillion dollar companies having to move their manufacturing operations because they're not like getting along on a national level. I mean, again, that sort of just indicates that it might not all be controlled like at that global level that people think. And if it was before, it doesn't look like it is as much now. So, I mean, like, again, I think you're just getting a sort of these more like regionalizing effects that you're starting to see uh, globally. And like the, 
the semiconductor factories aren't the only ones, you know, I mean, even a, a, as far as oil production and things like that go with, with the Russia situation, like, I mean, of course, I mean, you could talk about European food policy and all of that as being like a step mm-hmm. in the opposite direction, but like, mm-hmm. uh, but even through the Russia crisis, I mean, you're seeing um, difficult to ship commodities, like commodities went up in prices, like even during um, like fertilizer was a fertilizer shortages were a problem and fertilizer became extremely expensive. Um, and I, you know, I've yet to see some of the fallout with that in Africa. Like I've been hearing that there's going to be, mm-hmm. um, tons of people starving. And what that and would do to food prices, yields. for example. Right. Right. But, but it, again, it's sort of forcing a lot of these countries hands into like just having to do more stuff domestically, you know, like in, in a for way sure. that the globalized order before, like it wasn't necessary. Cause if you could get it for super cheap from somewhere far away, I mean, well, that's fine, but but if you're not able to do that anymore, then that sort of just changes the game. And it seems like we're already like somewhat like pretty clearly far down that path of like moving away from globalization in some regards. And I think that's totally. kind of what the future is going to look like. It's not going to be like up oh, globalization's over. There's no big tech anymore. Like all these things are gonna, I don't think it's going to be like that. I think there's going to be some uh, probably like strategically significant um like manufacturing and like commodities that need to be produced domestically that, that you'll see done. But I think there's also going to be like this constant push for globalization specifically in technology. I mean, I think it's ultimately the history of the 20th century and of the 19th century repeating itself, you know, uh, on a more insane nuclear armed level because this is exactly what you were seeing in kind of the, uh, you know, the pre-World War One era. And I know you've heard me talk about this before. Uh, the, the James Corbett makes this point fantastically in a presentation that he gave. Um, but essentially, you know, as these kinds of incredibly globalized systems like the one that we have been enjoying you know sort of are theoretically still living under right now uh the Bretton Woods system uh which was put in place right in the wake of World War II as the United States was the only nuclear armed power in the world for a relatively short period of time but long enough to really play the dominant role in creating the post-World War II order uh, as, a, as a victorious power, as the victorious power, despite really not having participated super significantly in the war at all, but uh, kind of managed to show up at the tail end and through Operation Paperclip. Um, I'm sorry, was Operation Paperclip where they... No, no, pardon me. Operation Paperclip is where they worked on the uh, space program. By managing to create a nuclear weapon prior to the Nazis, uh, they really, the U.S. took this incredibly dominant role in the world, eventually economically. Um, And so, you know, that was the world order. And now that that is ending, uh, I mean, history would indicate, and unfortunately, the sorts of proxy conflicts we're seeing all over the world right now between the United States and, and Russia you know, most urgently, but, uh, I, I would argue that the United States has been up to this kind of thing for, for quite some time. Uh, you know, the, the, there tends to be violence involved in these transitions. And I think that, um, 
as you were saying before, a lot of the sort of control grid measures that have been imposed through the COVID lockdowns and just through a lot of the, I would argue, the uh, the global war on terror was a huge uh, component of this of this system. But you know, they they have really created a lot of mechanisms which could arguably prevent some of these wars. Uh, I think is how the um, the sort of globalist type folks would view this. And, and this was, by the way, how uh, globalist organizations like the United Nations have always been viewed is, is as a uh, as a means of preventing calamitous world wars like World Wars One and Two. Yeah, you know, post I'm just thinking about it now, post World War Two, I mean, I get it's fascinating just how much uh, like like how normalized the idea of travel has become, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously, it goes back to like the invention of the airplane, uh, totally. introduction of it to the consumer market, huge, at least. But, yeah. but I mean, it it really is crazy to think about just how normal it is that like you could just get on a plane and like go to India or something and be there in like two days, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I, one thing I wanted to ask you is how do you how do you think that travel will change as a result of education? I mean, again, like being in the in the post COVID environment, uh, one thing that I notice is still most private universities and well, I think almost all the private universities and most of the public ones still require, um, like vaccines for you to, to even attend the school. And I I think they, like, even if you were going like virtual or remote or whatever, I think they even still required it. So like, I I wonder like how, like, do do you think that that's still going to be a thing? Um, like let's let's say in a couple of years, like like mid well, number like like do you think people will still be traveling uh, to get mm-hmm. an education, or do you think that that's going to be like a more local thing now? The idea of going away to college, yeah, yeah. I, I do think uh, number one, it's important to recognize that. Well, I don't want to speak like I'm an authority on the subject, but I did work at a university for a few years. And I do feel like I have a little bit of insight into this. I'm very strongly of the opinion that the like university bubble is going to pop in a big way that it already has commenced doing so even before COVID. COVID closed a lot of colleges. Um, I think what it's going to kind of revert to is a university system pretty similar to the old Prussian system. Uh, that the the university system in the U.S. was originally modeled on, but I I, I just think it's going to turn into something much more like um, what it used to be, which is elite finishing schools for the professional management class, and I don't think it is going to be continue to be the norm as it was post World War II, where. Uh, you know, a college education is a rite of passage for all middle-class people. I don't think that's going to continue to be the norm at all. Um, in fact, I don't really think that the middle class, as we have traditionally understood it, is going to continue to be a huge norm either. And so, so I guess I would say that the tr- yes to your your question, which is like, will these trends continue in universities? Yeah, I think they will. I think universities will continue to emulate the sort of culture that they are now. Um, 
and the vaccines and all that crazy, the wokeness, all that stuff will probably, I don't see any reason why that would stop anytime soon unless the relationship between university and the state just fundamentally changed somehow. Uh, but, but that said, I also think it's important to recognize that it's just going to, there's no way that it's going to continue to be this sort of universal experience for all middle-class kids that they're going to go away to college. I think there's going to be like, you know, one or two significant, like major universities in each state or something or whatever, if we even have states going forward, but, uh, you know, in each region or whatever, and that'll be where you go if you want to be, uh, you know, part of your your local government or whatever it is. It's shocking to me that there hasn't been like an online school that has really like made inroads yet. You know, like it just seems like such an obvious thing. I'm, but I'm I'm sure there's tons of people who have tried to work this out. But I, I just wonder what like what the limiting factor and the challenges are for that, because it just seems like it's so obvious, you know? Well, but, I mean, I could tell you as someone who got an online degree, it's frankly, I'm sorry. I mean, I just think it's kind of a racket in and of itself. The very idea that, I mean, look, you just need to be, it, education is a much more complicated dynamic and human experience than I think what any online platform can really allow for. Um, I just think there needs to be a classroom. That's my personal opinion. That's not to say that nobody can receive an education online. I just think that there is an inherent, the idea of a liberal education and all that it entails, uh, that requires a college, in my opinion. Now, the idea that anyone and everyone should receive a liberal education in order to be considered like a normal kind of adequate member of society is totally absurd. Um, that it, it's really kind of mind blowing to me that that was ever, you know, made some kind of a societal norm. It's really the, the Montgomery GI bill that did that more than anything probably. But, um, with that, of course, we've seen this massive expansion of, of government subsidies of, of student loans and, all these growth of these um, private, in many cases, non-accredited universities, um, plenty of online programs. I mean, basically any excuse to churn out degrees, you know, for whatever they possibly can, because kids can get loans for it. And because there's still a cultural belief that a college degree equals, you know, I don't even think they necessarily know. It's just like entry into the middle class. That's basically like, because it once did, of course, as, as we, we all know this story pretty well by now, we talk about this a lot, but um, I, I don't really think it's going to continue to be this, this universalist thing. I don't know if most people know this, but I mean, it's really only in the United States that like going away to college is like a thing, like in the vast majority of the world, most kids stay, they continue living at home, uh, like with their family and go to college or work concurrently. If they go to college at all, because like a lot of those countries have actually working apprenticeship programs. Which sure. Yeah. I but think but I'm, I'm just making the point that the, the idea of going away to college is almost like purely an American phenomenon. Like even totally. in Europe, it's not like completely normalized, you know? I mean, no. I, I know Europeans who have like 
gone to different countries and stuff for school but even yeah. that is like pretty rare like most of them would go yeah. to the university that's like near their hometown you know totally yeah and, and and it's a very bizarre thing and it's extremely expensive and all these things that everybody knows so yeah i mean i think it's just so many things are in the, and and like what that is going to do to sort of the the culture at large right like i mean how are we even going to exceed you know if you again uh, if you look historically, it's at times like this that there has usually been tremendous amounts of civil unrest because this professional managerial class, you know, which essentially is what it sounds like. These are the people who are pulling the levers of society at a pretty intimate level, and they are, are beginning to realize that they're not getting what they've been promised. You know, I mean, I think you and I have have experienced this in a lot of ways and um, they have a, a surprising amount of power if they can figure out a way to sort of consolidate it. And I'm not trying to make this sound like a good thing because this is essentially how the Nazi thing happened, um, not to mention all the horrible revolutions that, you know, are largely over romanticized, in my opinion. But, um, you know, when when doctors and lawyers start feeling like they've been duped things can get a little crazy yeah i mean at that point because it wouldn't be just them you know like it would be them <laughs> it would basically yeah. be them on down you know so totally but yeah and i think covid has really exacerbated a lot of that um and we haven't really seen uh i know people talk about the economy being bad now but we haven't even like begun to see like any real economic fallout i mean i don't know if people remember 2008 or so but i mean like we're like nowhere near anything like that happening and like layoffs have just started to happen so like i mean the the fed and the political situation sorts of is trying to push this idea of like a quote-unquote soft landing instead of a traditional economic boom and bust cycle you know but mm -hmm, typically mm -hmm. and i think this is something that people should hear is typically at the bottom of these cycles like like you'll get layoffs right but then what characterizes the bottom is like a liquidity event it's called where there's where people are forced sellers, like where people are forced to sell things because they have to pay their debts, right? So I mean, if you if you think that that's the true bottom, like in two thousand eight, where people are foreclosed on their house, they they have to sell their house to to pay their mm -hmm. debts. We're nowhere even near that part of the cycle. So like, if you think it's bad yeah. now economically, it could get a lot worse from here. That's not to say it will for sure. But like typically, uh, like in economic history, at least that's what characterizes like the bottom of an economic cycle. And I mean, you could make a, an educated argument that like with modern monetary theory and all of this, that they've essentially been able to like, uh, I mean, I don't want to get too technical, but they've been able to to fudge the numbers and manipulate the system to to a degree to where that never happens. But I mean, once you get people starting to believe that, it kind of feels like the fault, the bottom's going to fall out at, at that point, you know, um, because once you start thinking it's a new paradigm, then that's typically when uh, the market tends to revert. So wasn't but, that famously yeah. kind of what happened in 2008, right? Like they essentially thought that they created a um, burst proof bubble. Um, I think even uh, Alan Greenspan famously said something along those lines. And then shortly thereafter, there was the crash of 2008. By the way, I think it's so uh, funny the way that you you worded that, you know, if anyone remembers 2008, 
because I, I recently heard the point made, um, I think it was uh, on Sam Tripoli's podcast, which by the way, I'm such a huge fan of the uh, tinfoil hat podcast. Uh, but um, he, he said something about how like, you know, all if you kind of think about all of this woke stuff everything for like all of this kind of extreme sort of culture war content that has really become so mainstream and so all-consuming uh isn't it kind of interesting that it seems to have started right around the time that, you know, there was all of this backlash, like right around 2010, when, you know, there was this mass. And I remember this, man, because I was a, a college student living in Philadelphia at the time. Anyone who was in a big city on the East Coast, at least, I don't know what it looked like on the West Coast, but, uh, you know, remembers the Occupy Wall Street protests. I mean, this was like a real major... For, it, the the energy of it was very different to anything that else that I had ever sort of experienced in my lifetime. I'd never really seen a sustained mass protest movement like that before. Um, and then it all just sort of got overwhelmed somehow by all this incredibly divisive talk, you know, very... Uh, 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 you know, gender oriented, sexuality, uh, race, ethnicity, a lot of this kind of stuff came into play and became a topic of discussion again. Uh, just and, and of course, brilliantly, the corporations who got, you know, in many cases bailed out and were the obvious targets of that very understandable grassroots outrage being expressed in the Occupy Wall Street protests, they were and still are among the most prolific uh, messengers, you know, of, of this message uh, uh, of, uh, of wokeness, so to speak. I mean, I just think it's, it's a fascinating little thing. Yeah, you know, I think the interesting dynamic with that is that, you know, people on the right, conservatives at least, tend to frame it as like, oh, this is like a World Economic Forum plot to to decrease gender lines and all of that. But, but like you're saying, once you're even engaging in that, you're already in it. And then like, so, so to me, it's like the whole conversation is the PSYOP. And then like, Absolutely. once you're even participating Amen. in the conversation, then like you've already been neutralized <laughs> at that point. Absolutely. You know? They've got you chasing your tail, running around screaming that the sky is falling. Like it doesn't matter what you're talking about, what you're arguing about. They've got you arguing. They've got you all pissed off at some person who's more like you than like them, you know? And but it's just I, I want to like... make the point though. It's, it's not like, it's not that you're necessarily making a mistake by somewhat like getting involved because they're bringing it to you you know what i mean like it's not like everybody is necessarily choosing to participate in it mm -hmm. i mean like they're mm -hmm. making you go to seminars mm -hmm. at work you know mm -hmm. like they're making you do they're making you get uh or they're encouraging you to <laughs> they're, they're holding your job against you or yep. how, how do i want to say this um they're uh they're ma they're making you get the vaccine to keep your job, you know. Yep. So so like it, it's not so much like oh you could just check out of the culture war because it, the culture war is real, 
Well, but like, I and, mean, I guess you, you yeah. have to like decide like at what level you're participating it in it and recognize it, but they are bringing it to your doorstep, you know? hundred percent. I mean, I think it's, this is a very important paradigm to talk about because this is impossibly complex. It's an incredibly treacherous balance to try and strike if you're trying to strike the balance, because, uh, the reality is exactly as you say, that there are all of these ways that because of the fact that, you know, people hearing this right now, we've all to some extent or other been born into a control grid. Uh, I think the, the problem comes in for me when people act like that's not true. Like, I think that the issue comes in when, you know, people are responsible for kind of striking whatever balance they, that works for them. But I do think it's important to recognize at a certain point that it is ultimately going to be your choice which side of that fence you end up on. And so, yes, it's true that like, you know, to, to use kind of a, a pretty simplistic metaphor, like let's say there's like, you know, okay, I, I, I actually, <laughs> this is a scene from one of my favorite movies, Shenandoah with, uh, with Jimmy Stewart. Uh, and he's like this, so the context is the civil war and he's this farmer who like, you know, just, he doesn't want anything to do with either side. You know, he's just like this kind of scrappy individualist kind of guy and he just doesn't want to be bothered by any of it he and also they're trying to draft his son into the confederate army and he's not into it so he's like sitting there having this argument with a sergeant who's who's trying to get his son to fight in the army and he says something like you know we didn't declare any war and you know i didn't ask for any war and the sergeant in the army says to him, uh, yeah, well, you might feel differently once they start firing cannons at your property. And that's always a fair point, right? Like you may not want to get involved in something, but what if it just involves you whether you like it or not? Well, at that point, it's your choice. What exactly you feel is your priority? I mean, that's really kind of what it comes down to. See, to me, it... it it, it's a relevant question like, okay, uh, my farm here, is my farm more important to me than not participating in this war for, you know, any number of reasons, like not having my son get drafted into the military and very likely, you know, maimed or killed. Uh, maybe we better just get the hell out of here, you know, or maybe that's not the choice that you make. Maybe you do feel that it's somehow worth it or justified for you to, to kind of join into the uh the melee that is you know obviously i'm using this as a metaphor for i don't know the whole process of of politics and media and just like working within this system and trying to negotiate your way through this economy which is so clearly rigged against anyone you know who's who's trying to live a, a sort of an independent existence uh, it really, ultimately, it just comes down to one's choices. You know, it just comes down to um, what side of the fence you want to end up on. Yeah, you know, I think so much of it is about like measuring your own dependencies, you know, and figuring out like what uh, what's worth, what battles are worth fighting and what's worth defending and what's not, totally. you know. I mean, um, uh, an animal will chew its own leg off to get out of a trap. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's just, that's what they're, and you could are, you could sit there and talk all day about whether or not that's an intelligent decision to make. I don't know how it works out for them most of the time, probably not very well, but I think the solution is clear to them because they have their priorities straight. They know exactly what they are. 
yeah you know and i think sort of to go off uh, to go off of what you were just saying is it's like even um even in people who go away to college or whatever i mean they're they're making like their own difficult trade-off in doing that you know like totally. like how much how much of travel I mean, at least for me, like so much travel for me was just like visiting my family when I was like away at college or living somewhere else. And it was because of like making a trade off, like to to try to find a job, like to, to make money, you know, like that was right. just sort of like what you had to do. But I mean, it's interesting now, like just in the post COVID world, like like with within the context of like these larger um, like regional trends that we've been talking about like it's just interesting to think about how much that will change you know like like for example yeah. in the lives of our kids for example i think that a lot of these dynamics are just going to be like fundamentally different than they were for us growing up absolutely um and i mean i say this as someone who i literally just flew back from my kids uh, with my kids from san diego and you know i'm going to be doing so again in a couple of months um it's a, it's a crazy situation to be in, but yeah, I don't think that these sorts of things are going to continue to be the norm. I think that, uh, soon enough, you know, most vacations are going to be regional like they were, you know, not very long ago. Uh, I know I myself have done a lot, I mean, largely just through, but I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about. Just personal circumstances are changing for everybody. Uh, I don't travel nearly as much as I used to and, um, am, pretty happy with that quite frankly i mean um i will still take a road trip every chance i get because that's just something i really enjoy and it's also one of the few ways that i get to kind of see family without engaging in the miserable process of flying but um i don't know what about you like how has has travel been affected for you in in you know recent kind of years of your life i know you've had a lot of transitions you've recently made yeah. And I mean, I was used to doing tons of global travel. I mean, for the last like 10, 15 years, I mean, I've been traveling internationally like a couple times a year, uh, at least normally for like, at least like between, between 30 and 40 days a year normally. Mm -hmm. But, um, post COVID, I mean, like I didn't travel at all for like, I guess three years really, like just, just domestically, you know, but, but like mm -hmm. you were saying, you know, I think that's an important point is that so much travel now, I think it's just going to be, again, just regional. For example, people from the Northeast typically go to like Florida for a vacation. Like that's a typical mm -hmm. vacation. Um, at, at least it was like for my parents' generation, right? But then I think a lot of the younger people like millennials then started to do a lot more global travel. And like, I was definitely somebody who got into that. But over the mm -hmm. last couple of years, like I've just started going back to Florida and like, I love going to Florida, you know? <laughs> like yeah. So that, that was something I wanted to ask you about, you know, like, do you think that people are still going to be like doing these like uh, international like destination traveling or like, do you think it's going to become again, like more of a regional thing? Yeah, I really kind of don't. I don't think they will. I think that's something we're going to see change pretty, pretty quickly. And again, revert to something that just elites are able to do. I think the whole idea of like taking your college, you know, your spring break in some European place or whatever the hell people do. I, I don't don't think that's going to be normal at all. I, again, the college thing has changed. So, you know, um, I think it's going to be even more regional than Florida. And I mean, I, when I go to the beach, I go to Maine. You know, I think people are going to start doing stuff like that. Um, it's, you know, people from New York are just going to keep, they're going to start going to the Jersey Shore and to Long Island and, and, and Connecticut and places like that. Uh, like people always used to. I mean, even in my lifetime, that was kind of a norm 
for sure there was all this international travel as well. But I think it will be in a, in a lot of ways. And you're already seeing a little bit of these kind of little localized revivals, you know, taking place. Places like the Jersey Shore, that's a great example. Um, I don't know to what extent that's happening already. And, you know, I don't want to over-romanticize anything about New Jersey. But the I, I just feel like there will certainly be growth in all sorts of little local small businesses and industries and um, that is going to spring up around that. And I do think that that's a good thing. Yeah. You know, I, I think a lot of, uh, especially the international travel, like I think there's going to be a lot of factors that contribute. I, I don't want to say there's going to be a reduction in it necessarily. Cause I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know that, but I mean, a lot of places that people might have gone to, uh, given a lot of the geopolitical dynamics now could become more dangerous, you know, like it, just in general, like it's just kind of like more dangerous to travel now than it used to be. Like, even if I was planning a trip to Europe now, like I, you have to be kind of like concerned and careful about like where you're going in a way that you wouldn't have had to be five years ago. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's sort of just starting to creep in now. But like, let's say you were going to go to Asia and you had like a connecting flight through Taiwan or something like you might have to like, I mean, you're at least starting to see where like you might want to think about it. You know, I mean, I'm not saying you can't do that now, but like you're mm -hmm. having to think about this in a way that you definitely didn't have to five years. Totally. Ago, you know? and, I, and I also think again to, you know, maybe a little bit conspiratorial, but I really think especially when you see things being promoted in mass media in like a huge way, again, not to say that it's not true or to in any way stigmatize it but i just i think it's very interesting to to i mean to me a big part of like you mentioned europe right i feel like in recent years whenever somebody talks to me about europe like especially of the uh the older you know, like the gen x or boomer type folks people who can actually afford to go to take trips to europe in most cases um it's always like uh that they, they they're very conscious of the ways in which a lot of the immigration has changed those countries, which as far as I, I mean, it's very likely true. I'm, I'm not disputing that that's the case, but I do think that there is a degree to which that story, that narrative has really been proliferated. And it makes me wonder, man, like it's it just, you know, again, this idea, um, Kind of the same idea that we were talking about earlier with, you know, introducing uh, central bank controlled digital currencies uh, and digital IDs and all of these things as a way of kind of, you know, ushering in gradually this sort of new system that can replace the old. I just wonder if a lot of these narratives and almost to some degree, even like some of the events um, I mean, I, I don't, I really do not, I, we would probably disagree on this, but I really do not think it's that far fetched to imagine that not only would there be like, it's like a false flag squared, you know? So not only would there just be like a, a media campaign to create a certain effect, but like that you would actually state, create an event in order to give a reason for a media campaign. Uh, I guess I'm just saying like, I see a lot of room for that sort of thing for psyops and media to affect 
travel culture and travel norms. And I think that that's always an ever existent component of, of all of these things. And what's so fascinating to me about it is like, you can never know with any degree of certainty, you know, what it's really about, uh, what they're really trying to do. It just, to me is, is interesting to speculate on. Yeah. You know, I think the whole thing, the whole thing with travel is just interesting because it seems like we're in like, maybe the last decade was like, the bubble, like the peak of the bubble in uh-huh. travel in, in every sense, like not just international travel, but just in how much times people are, people are spending commuting, um, domestic travel, everything. Right. But Anthony you know, Bourdain the, was on TV. <laughs> yeah. RIP. But um, he, yeah. it, it's, I think there's always going to be though, this like innate human desire to travel and see different cultures. So I, I don't think it's ever going to go away completely. But I think we might be, uh, I think the bubble might be, might be bursting on that. And now uh, driven by economics or um, social factors or whatever, whatever the factors are, um, I think we're kind of coming back into a more, uh, a more regional way of living. Not necessarily like the, the hyper localist perspective, you know, that, that we talk about often. Like, I, I don't think most people are going to live like that at no, least for a long time. I, or at least, if, at least if, not Maybe never, you know, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I don't think they'll ever be able to like totally, uh, eradicate like the innate human desire to travel and explore, you know? No, not at all. And I think, uh, this point was made really well on, on one of, uh, Steve Rinella's shows, his, uh, meat eater hunting show where he was just talking about like this innate human impulse, as you say, just to, I think the way he put it was just to like, God, I wonder what the hell is around that, like through that pass, you know, like what's over there. Uh, it, it, I, I feel like especially there's something about the way geography is laid out and, and the way that it interacts with the human eye, the way that we experience places that sort of beckons us to explore uh, on this very kind of deep spiritual level. And I absolutely do think that it will continue forever. Um, I, I have personally, I have been to a few places overseas, but nothing like yourself. Uh, I have, however, dedicated most of my travel time and resources to going everywhere I possibly can in the continental United States. And I've never regretted it for a moment because um, just, especially this very kind of exploratory travel that I had the opportunity to do as a college student, just with a car and a tent and a sleeping bag. Um, I I cannot recommend that sort of thing enough, especially to young men who find themselves with just like not much to do and no particular reason to not do stuff like that. You should totally do it because uh, it's just really transformative and character building and horizon broadening. Um, and I think that that more localized aspect of it, frankly, is more so like that. I mean, really compare that with the incredibly, just by default, you know, having to fly to a place and stay in hotels and you're dealing with passports and you don't speak the language. I am not trying to dissuade people from international travel. I'm just saying compare the restriction of that experience to the freedom of driving through the desert with your, you know, windows open and like you just, you know, pulling over to, to camp by some place that nobody knows about. I mean, it's just, it's so cool, you know? So I think that people will always do that for sure. 
yeah, you know, I've, I've traveled to a lot of places, but I think honestly, <laughs> I mean, it might sound, uh, might, uh, it might sound exceptionalist, I guess, American <laughs> exceptionalist to say, but I really think the United States is the best country to see. Like there's just, just the diversity of the landscape, the diversity of the things that you can do. Like, I mean, like you're saying, if, if you just could get a cheap car and stay in campgrounds around the country, I mean, that would be a trip that would rival anything you could do anywhere in the world. Like, and by the really way, is it's evidence. Oh, it, it really is. And, and, you know, it's evidenced by how many people from abroad come here to do just that. Like, I guess, you know, there are plenty of people kind of backpacking across other continents as well, but it is interesting to me, like that you see tons, but if you go to national parks, you see tons of Europeans, like tons of all these people whose cities we're supposed to be so interested in. And of course, you know, we are, but there they are like checking out our natural wonders because it really is the case that there's just, the, I, I, I think it actually is, you know, you, you can find spectacular things everywhere, but that the concentration of natural wonders that we have in North America, I, I really don't think you can find anywhere else. And uh, it's not just, by the way, the national wonders, it's natural wonders. It's also, uh, <laughs> there's just uh, the uniqueness of this society is, is so obvious. And it's just, I think that it creates an experience that is so unique. I mean, the absurdity of some of the things that you see, you know, the, the tragic nature of some of these things, uh, the way that it's also relatively new. And so it's just all so clear to see, um, driving through, I mean, you know, the, the, the thing that kind of sticks out the most in my mind, driving through kind of the middle of the country, it's just like some of these, these old mining towns that you see, uh, everywhere. You just see these abandoned towns. You know, it's the craziest thing. I don't know if there's anywhere else like that in the whole world where you just see like this series of just abandoned places that no one lives anymore. There used to be all this stuff. You can just like see it all humming away and it's just dead. Uh, so crazy. It's still a frontier here, you know, and I yeah. think that's what people from Europe don't have that. And most people from Asia like don't have that. So then I think that's sort of like, the reason that they want to see the national parks when they come here. I mean, I spent a couple months in India um, last year and I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to speak too much about it, but I mean, it was like just the level of like uh, the, the amount of trash and pollution and stuff. Like it's wild. It's really wild yeah. when you see it in person. And then like, just knowing that like, if you live in Seattle or San Francisco or even New York, you could drive two hours and like be in basically untouched wilderness. I mean, like that's just not like a thing that you could do in many other places. Very true.